Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been a couple of weeks that we've actually been in our study in the book of Judges, so I thought that it would be helpful uh, to all of us for me to give you a little bit of a review of where we last left off in chapter 11. And there in chapter 11, we read about uh, one of Israel's uh, saviors, really, one of their judges who, who, who God himself had set apart. This is a man who was a mighty warrior, um, but yet the people, his own people, rejected him. Uh, they rejected him until things begin to go wrong. When things begin to fall apart, hardship begin to set in, they begin to become oppressed by their neighbors, the Ammonites. All of a sudden, they begin to call on the very one that they had rejected to now save them. And so what we saw is that Jephthah, at first at least, refused. He didn't like the terms. He knew that the only reason they were calling them is because they were having difficulties and hardships. And he knew that all they wanted was for him to bail them out. And if he comes to bail them out, then after they're bailed out, they're just going to go on and do their own thing. So he refused them. Finally, they come back to him and they say, listen, we're going to change the terms. They go, we want you to come and save us, but we want to follow you fully and completely, all of our people from this day forward forever. And we see that Jephthah agrees to those terms. And what we said several weeks ago was this is really just a picture of salvation. That, that, that God doesn't respond to save people of their sins when they just cry out to him in midst of difficulties, when they want nothing to do with him. Instead, what true salvation looks like is you, you receive him as Lord and Savior. It's lordship salvation. It's saying, God, we want all of you. Yes, we're in trouble. We need you, but we're submitting our whole life to you. And that's what we learn in that text. Well, after they come to him and after they say, we'll submit to you, he immediately begins to work on their behalf. And what we find is in the scripture, and in chapter 11 and verses 13 through 28, what happens, let me just give you kind of a review there. Um, what happens is, is he begins to mediate or try to mediate peace between the children of Israel and the Ammonites, but he completely fails. Nothing, work, nothing that he does works. So finally, he is forced to lead God's people into battle over the Ammonites. And so that's where we find ourselves picking up in our story in verse 29. Now, before we get into the story, I want to kind of address something just really quickly with you. And that is that the text that's before us, and you probably kind of begin to understand this just by a cursory reading of the text in the beginning of the service, this is not an easy text, all right? In fact, this is probably one of the most disturbing and, tra and tragic passages, not only in the book of Judges, but in all of the Word of God. And because of that, um, really, commentators and Bible scholars and preachers have really disagreed to, to really what to do with the text. I mean, they've struggled to really file down and determine what, what is it actually happening here, and then even more, uh, how does it apply to us? And so what they've done is some scholars have simply tried to explain the story away. Other people have tried to spin some of the details to make it sound maybe a little bit more palatable. And, and many other scholars have just kind of tried to ignore it altogether. Well, I don't want to ignore God's word, do you? Uh, I, I want to know why it's there. All scripture is inspired by God. So we want to take a look at this, but, but I got to tell you, we need God more than ever, right? We need him to teach us, to lead us, to give us a, a clarity of what this text is about. So here's two questions that we're going to ask ourselves that we're going to try to answer, and, and it should help us navigate through the text of scripture. Two questions we want to answer this morning. The first is this, what was it that Jephthah vowed to God? He promises God something. What is it that he's actually promising him? And what I'm going to show is that there's a lot of people that disagree on this. But after we come to that conclusion, what I want to ask is this. What is it that we should learn from Jephthah's vow? 
what was the vow and what are we now to learn from it? So let's, let's jump right into the text this morning. What was it that Jephthah vowed to God? We begin to see the vow in the beginning of verse 29. Follow along, if you will, with me. It says, the Bible says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to um, Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Now note this. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to me, to meet me, then I, in return, in peace from the Ammonites, shall be, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for burnt offerings. So what is he doing? First of all, he's making a deal with God, right? You ever make a deal with God? If you do A, then I'll do B, right? And, and, and what's the deal? The deal is, hey, if you give us victory, now understand, before this, he already promised victory, but now he's trying to make certain that God's gonna give him victory. So he says, hey, listen, he goes, if you will give us victory over the Ammonites, then what I will do is I'm on my way home, as I'm celebrating, as I'm rejoicing, whatever the first thing is that comes out of the house, I will sacrifice to you as a burnt offering. All right, you could see that this is not going to end well, right? And so notice what happens. God actually does give him the victory over the Ammonites. Notice beginning verse 32, the Bible says, So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. So note this. Uh, he, He wants victory. He gets victory. This is a high point in Jephthah's ministry. This is a high point in his life. It's a high point in, in, in the book of Judges. It's a high point for his people. They've needed victory. They were being oppressed by their enemies, and they know that they've been delivered by the very hand of God. This is something to rejoice about, right? That's when you and I, we come, we rejoice. Why? Because we know we've been rescued. We've been redeemed. Why? Because of the mighty hand of God. So it's something that they would have rejoiced about, but the rejoicing doesn't last long, at least not for Jephthah. Because now, in his agreement, God has done what he asked God to be able to do. Now, he's got to do his part of the bargain. And so, we, and what was it that he promised? Remember, whatever it is that comes out of my house, that first meets me, I will do what? Sacrifice as a burnt offering. So, now, note how drastically this story changes. It says, then, it says, then Jephthah, verse 34, then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. Great. uh, She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord. I cannot take back my vow. Now, here's the deal. I know you're very bright people, but probably brighter than most Bible scholars because scholars really don't all agree on what's happening here. They don't agree on what he's actually making a vow for. It seems evident to me, and it probably seems evident to you, but let me tell you how different scholars kind of twist this or or some of their interpretation of what's going on in the text. Just stick with me through this. So some of them, some scholars are saying, hey, listen, he's not promising a human sacrifice here. He's promising an animal sacrifice. In essence, what he's promising God is, hey, God, you're a good God, and because you gave us victory, I want to worship you, and the first animal that comes out of the door of my house uh, to to me, I'm going to sacrifice to you. Now, that sounds really good, uh, except for a couple things. First of all, it's historically inaccurate. 
Okay, I know it's hard to believe, but people didn't actually have bulls and sheep and ram and pigeons inside their house with them, okay? Uh, Just like I hope that you don't have them, all right? So it wasn't like they're like, hey, we're going to settle down with the bull tonight. Yeah, bull's in my room. All right, let's lay down with them. Tomorrow, sorry, you're gone. We're killing you. And so it doesn't make any sense for them to say whatever animal comes out of the house to sacrifice. Historically, it just doesn't make much sense. But not only historically, but we also see linguistically it's inconsistent with the text. In other words, he says, whatever comes out of my house and what first meets me. Well, I know some of you are, you know, you got your dog and your cat and your fish or whatever it is because my dog meets me every day at the end of work yes but uh, the truth of the matter is when we're talking about actually meeting we're talking about someone and so really linguistically even in the hebrew it, it leans far more to, to him talking about the first person that he ultimately meets that comes out okay so so a couple reasons why this doesn't make sense is historically inconsistent linguistically inconsistent and then finally it's emotionally inconsistent If he had actually promised God, his promise was that he would sacrifice any animal that comes out of the door, then when his wife, then when his daughter comes out, he wouldn't throw a fit. He wouldn't be distraught. He would sit there and go, hey, I like the dancing. Hey, cool tambourine, right? And he would, he, he would maybe spin her around a little bit like I do with my girls. And then he would wait and look and see what animal was going to plop out again. So the truth of the matter is, I mean, it's a great idea to try to skirt the issue, but I just don't think it's consistent with the word of God. Now, other, other commentators ha- have suggested, other scholars have said, well, really, he, he's not making a sacrifice at all. This isn't about sacrifice. This is about dedication. Let me just explain what the argument is. The argument goes something like this. What he's actually doing is he's saying he's expecting that a servant is going to come to the door. I think that's legitimate. And he says, and if a servant comes to the door, what he's doing is he's going to take that very servant and he's going to give them over to God in the temple and he's going to dedicate them to temple service for the rest of their life. So it has nothing to do with sacrificing an animal or a person. It just has to do with them dedicating service to God in the temple. Now, let me, let me explain something about this point. There is some biblical validity to this. Of of all of them, there is some validity to this because we actually see in the Word of God people being dedicated to temple service. I think one of the the most well-known passages of this is, is Hannah in 1 Samuel. Hannah can't have a child, and so she begins to beg and plead to God, and she says, if you will just give me a child, what is she going to do? I'll dedicate him. I'll dedicate that child to your service. And we find that's exactly what she did. He says, after he was old enough to get weaned, she took him to the temple doors, and and she gave him, she dedicated him to God, to service to God in the temple. So there is some biblical consistency there. Now, what people will do, the people that hold to this argument, what they'll ultimately say is that the text also gives evidence that this is what's going on. And they say it's clear in her response to her father. Remember, her father goes, oh, I must do what it is that I promised God to do. And then notice her response in verse 36. She says, my father, you have opened, because you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what was gone out of, what has gone out of your mouth. So what the argument goes like this. Hey, man, this is a teenage child. There ain't no way she's agreeing to his stupid agreement that he's going to burn her to the stake, all right? I can't even get my child to clean the room without rebelling, never mind sacrificing them and burning them to death. And her go, hey, God, you got to do, hey, Dad, you got to do what you got to do, man. You promised God. So they say this is just not realistic. The problem is that argument is actually inconsistent with Scripture. Because what we find is in one of the most well-known passages of all of Scripture with Abraham and Isaac, we see this very thing happen. 
when Abraham is going to go and make a sacrifice that God has commanded, he takes his son. His son goes, hey, where's the sacrifice? Well, this guy's not stupid. When he has rope and he has a dagger, no sacrifice, he goes, we're going to sacrifice. And then he says, son, who is usually probably a young adult at the time, when he says, hey, man, hop on the altar. At this particular point, he kind of knows something's going on. And what does the Bible say? They restrained him and laid him on. It doesn't say that he argued, bickered, complained, cussed his father out, whatever. He didn't do any of those things. He submitted himself. So it's really not a good argument to say that she wouldn't have responded in the way that she did. Others would suggest that, that this is dedication because of her request that she makes to her father. In verse 37, she says this. It says, so she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, go. So here's the argumentation. What they're saying is we know that she's going to be dedicated because if she's dedicated over in the temple, then her chance of getting married is completely done. She's going to serve. She's going to live a a celibate life. And she's going to have no chance of having any children. Okay, well, that sounds logical, but it's just not necessarily biblical. In other words, we find other places in the word of God. We find in Exodus chapter 38 and 1 Samuel chapter 2 where women are serving in the temple before God. But here's the bottom line. Guess what? It doesn't say anything about them not being able to be married or having children. So it's all speculation. If we sit there and go, well, she couldn't get married, and that's why she's weeping, it's all speculation. It's us taking our ideas and pushing it on the text itself. Let me just say this. I know some of you are like, man, that is the most boring garbage I've ever heard. I know you're thinking that. But let me tell you this. The reason that I'm giving it to you is because we have to know what exactly is happening in the text. And the clearest understanding of the text is this is that this man tried to make a deal with God. And he basically was expecting that somebody was going to come out that door when he got home. And he made a deal with God that whoever comes out, if, if he gives him the victory, that he would sacrifice in a burnt offering that person that comes out of the door. Now, that's the clearest understanding of the text, is it not? If you, if you didn't know any Greek, any Hebrew, any, any, any history, you read the text, that's the conclusion that you'd come to, and I believe it's right. Now, let's, let's, just, let's be honest. You see why scholars are trying to skirt this, right? I mean, I mean the, the thought of what's happening here is repugnant, and it is disgusting. And when we look at it, we're like, man, there's got to be some different way to, to get around this, some way to explain it. What it's saying can't possibly be what it ultimately means, but it is. It is. And, and, and there's, there's no other way around it. There's nothing that we can say or do to be able to make it right. It's, it's ugly. It's, it's uncomfortable. But it is what it is. In fact, he goes on not only to make the promise, but I believe he goes on to kill his daughter. Verse 39 says, And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. I think one of the reasons this is so uncomfortable is we can't explain it. And I think some of the times we, 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 we might think of those people who, who are antagonistic toward, towards the scriptures and they look at this kind of passage and they say to us, what kind of God are you serving? You have a God that makes agreements with men to sacrifice their daughter? What kind of God is this? Let me just say a few things before we, we, we finish out this text. And, and let me say this, God never made an agreement with him. He made an agreement with God. He tried to make a deal with God. The Bible never says that he condones his action, does it? God doesn't say that he blessed him for killing his daughter. He never said that he gave his permission to give his daughter. In fact, he had already said that he was going to give him the battle before he ever comes and tries to make and strike this deal up with God. Why? Because it was his will to deliver his people. God is not at fault in this situation at all. The fault rests on who? This man, on Jephthah. 
So that's what the story is about. I believe that he promised that he would kill the first person that comes out and offer them as a sacrifice to God if God gave him the victory. It's what happens. So now here's the question. Do we just pack up and go home? Is that it? No, I think there's more to it. What do we do with that truth? What do we do with what's going on in this text? I'm just going to do my best. First of all, I think at least we can say, at least we can say that what's happening here is we ought to be careful about the words that come out of our mouth, right? I mean, if nothing else, we need to be careful. And the Bible is constantly teaching us this. And most commentators agree, hey, man, watch what you say and watch what you promise. Don't go dealing with God, right? And, and don't go quoting oaths. And we see that throughout the scriptures. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36, it reminds us that we will give account for every careless word that we speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. James, whole chapter on the tongue and the evil and the power and destructive power of the tongue. Chapter 3, verse 7, he says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So we could at least agree, I think, couldn't we, that Jephthah at least stands as an example of somebody who speaks in a way that he ought not to speak. It teaches us, hey, listen, be careful what you say to your kids. Be careful what you say to your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, people that you don't even know. Be careful what comes out of your mouth because with your words, you can both condemn yourself and you can also destroy the life of another person. Okay, so most commentators end there. But I got to feel there's something more to this, don't you? and, And here's why. Because I do think it's a problem with the vow that he makes, but I think the vow demonstrates a deeper problem with his heart. Why does he make the vow to begin with, right? And because the the Bible tells us, yes, we can have a problem with our mouth, but it's really an indication that there's a problem with our heart. Because the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks, So if he's speaking crazy vows, trying to make deals with God and promising that he's going to sacrifice his daughter, there's something wrong with his heart. The vow reveals and demonstrates something about his spiritual condition. What does it do? Two things. First of all, it demonstrates, or the vow demonstrates, and it uh, demonstrates the, the tremendous influence the world can have on a believer. Now just think about it just for a minute. Here is a man, I believe he is a believer. I believe he's a man of faith. He's a guy with genuine faith. He knows some things. He's being used of God and God's redemptive plan for mankind to be able to rescue his people. The Bible even says the spirit of God is in him, but yet in other areas of his life where he gets some right, he gets some radically wrong. In some areas, he's thinking just like the world. See, the world in which he lives in, just understand this, it was all about wickedness, perversion and violence. Everything they did, everything they did was about killing people for the glory of their gods, even killing their own children for the glory of their gods. Do you know what's happening here? This man was so pressured by the, so influenced by the culture that lived without him, even though he had some things right, he had some things completely wrong, and he was no different than the world in which he lived. You guys catch that? And so this is exactly what Paul warns us of. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, it says this, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When he says, do not be conformed to the world, you know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, saints, don't be pressured into the mold of the world. You're not to look like the world. You're not to think like the world. You're not to act like the world. You're not to love like the world. You're not to be like them. Don't let the world and all the pressure all around you that's coming at you 24 hours a day, don't let it force you to become just like them. And then he gives the answer of how not to be. He says, instead of being conformed to the world, he says, but be transformed. What are we to be transformed in? Only one thing. 
in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. He says, don't be conformed to where you look by the world, but be transformed in the image of Christ. But then he tells us how to do it. He says, listen to this, by the renewing of your minds. The renewing of your minds. The scriptures say that it teaches that a change of mind results in a change of action. How do we renew our minds? Here, here's how it happens. How do we become more like Jesus? Through the careful reading, study, and application of God's word. That's how our lives are radically transformed. There's no other way. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the power of his word, we are ultimately changed. The problem here for Jephthah is he had the word, but he didn't use it. Now, he didn't have the full word of God like we do from Genesis to Revelation. He didn't have the whole thing, uh, the completed canon, but he did have the first five books of the Bible. He, 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 did have, he, he did have the first five books. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, it expressly commanded men not to take part in human sacrifices like the wicked religions do. In fact, God calls it an abominable thing. He should have had the word. He should have known the word. He should have submitted to it instead of falling to the pressure and looking like the world. Now, some will sit back and go, man, don't be so hard on Jephthah, man. Maybe he skipped a couple classes. Maybe he wasn't in church a couple weeks. I mean, you know, shrimp fest and all. I mean, he may have just had other things to do. And let me just tell you this. God has not given and entrusted you and I his word, the word of God, for you and I to ignore and not know. There is no, I, listen to me, there is no excuse for you and I to not know the word of God. None whatsoever. And so what he does is, is, is he moves on. He's ignorant of it. He, he does what the world calls him to do instead of what God is calling him to do. Now, let me break this down. The sad reality of the story is that Jephthah made a vow with every intention of sacrificing a human being. And he thought he was doing it as a demonstration of God's glory and his love for God. That's jacked up. I mean, would you agree that that's just not messed up when you look at that? I mean, when you look at that, you're thinking to yourself, I, I know that I am, it's just even hard to fathom. You're asking yourself, how can a guy in, one, in some ways have everything going for him and have everything together and on the next moment be completely in error, be completely blinded to his sin, and how in the world could he be so wrongly influenced? But we think that, isn't it? I mean, don't we kind of look around and, may, I don't know, maybe this is a pastor thing. You'll kind of meet somebody and you're like, hey, that's a sharp individual. Then you kind of say, you know, they got some kooky beliefs over here. But, uh, but you know, generally they're, they're doing pretty well. But, guys, this isn't just one of those little things that somebody's off on. This is radical. We're, we're, we're talking about a person who is used of God to save his people as a savior to his people and then turning around and being guilty of offering up in a pagan way his own daughter to God. Now, I wish I could tell you that this kind of influence from the world is uncommon. But unfortunately, historically, listen to me really carefully, it's evident throughout our church history. Let me, let me take you back to the 1600s just for a minute. Back to the 1600s, something big happened. It was called the Reformation. And basically what had happened is God had called people like Martin Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, many of these other guys, these reformers, and basically what they did is they rescued the gospel. The whole church, the whole Catholic church was basically saying the only way you can be right with God is through your works and through your deeds. And they came and they stated very emphatically, no, a man is saved by grace or faith alone. That's it, all right? And so what they did is many of the theology that I read, that you read, that, that we teach here, Baptistic theology, that we end up teaching to our people, guess what? Stems all the way back to the Reformation. It goes all the way back to the 1600s. These men changed the world as we know it through their doctrine. And at the same time, many of those same men, including Calvin, would kill 
people when they disagreed with their doubt and put them to death, whether through drowning or hanging or burning or whatever. And you sit there and you go, how can they be so on in one area and then turn around, be completely off and murder people on the other area? Well, let me give you another example. 150 years ago, right? Say you were a man in the South like we are now, and there you are ready to go to church and you got your all-white suit on, kind of like the colonel from Kentucky Fried Chicken, and you're sitting there and somebody comes to you and, and, and you're ready to propagate the gospel and you're ready to have a missions movement, which some of the people in the South of the day did. And they would go around and here was the theology. Here it is. Um, there's only one way to God. Jesus is the only way. There's, he's the way, the truth, and life. Nobody else comes to the Father but by him. They would share the true gospel and they wanted to know how that gospel was going to get out. And then on the same step, they would step just one step over And then they were willing to be able to take up guns, to be able to fight with those from the north in order to be able to validate slavery. Somehow these very missional people had gotten so distorted thinking that because of the color of somebody's skin that somehow they are of lesser worth and value and that it is their right, a God-given right, by the way, to be able to hold another individual against in slavery to take their freedom away. And this was a God that God had div- a way that God had divinely met to be able to meet their needs. How do you get off like that? It's so distorted. Now, now let's look at our own culture for a moment, shall we? Are there those things that we see ourselves being more impressionable by our culture? Those things that in the 1600s, in 150 years ago, those things that were off were not learned by God. You know what they were learned by? The culture. The pressure of the culture to do as the, in the way and to think like the culture. What about our own lives? Well, let's, let's just get really, you know, let's get really Sunday schoolish, all right? Let's give the Sunday school answer. Well, sex, man. Yeah, well, you're right. Um, the church is changing the way they view about sexual activity, and it's sad to be able to see it. Many churches are doing it. I mean, look, look, if I were to ask folks in this church, how far is too far when you're dating, all right? We'd have all different kinds of answers, and they'd all, almost all be wrong. We went through this through our dating series, right? Anything up to having, you know, going all the way is okay. Then you get to the scriptures like the book of Ephesians, and you're like, man, you ought not to be touching each other at all until you make the commitment. Of, uh, of marriage. I mean, it's just what the scriptures just clearly teach. But do you see how the church is like taking on the, the, the view of the culture? What about homosexuality? We've been seeing quite a bit of that here lately in the news, especially this last week. And it's amazing how many people I read just this last week who used to hold again and say, hey, the Bible's against this, but sit back and go, you know what? I've changed my mind over time. And they don't give any biblical precedent, precedence of why they've changed their mind. Do you know why they changed their mind? Because they were being conformed to the world. They were impressed in the image of the world and not through submitting to the word of God. There are so many other things. I think marriage is the same exact way. Hey, man, just get married. If it doesn't work out, just go off to the next person. Look, that's infiltrated within the church as well. When we, do, when we begin to counsel people for premarital counseling, they're like, hey, yeah, man. Hey, we're going to work this out. If it doesn't work out, I'll just pull the eject cord and we're out of there. That is not what God teaches about the institution of marriage. But yet the world keeps distorting us and changing us. But let me just say this. I give those examples because I think most of us would agree with it, right? But I'm not concerned with the stuff that we see. I mean, I'm concerned. But what I'm more concerned about is the stuff that we're oblivious to. See, for Jephthah, he was oblivious to that what he was doing was completely contrary to the word of God. The reformers somehow were completely blinded by the pressure of the world to think that to kill people for the sake of right doctrine was wrong to be able to do. 
150 years ago, people would swear up and down that they were completely blind to the fact that they thought that slavery was an okay thing. My question is, what is it for us? When the generation comes behind us, what would they look at and shake their heads just like we're shaking our heads at Jephthah? What would they look at us and, and, and go, how could they get something so right and yet be so radically and disturbing off with the way that they're living life? How can they do it? Now, I don't know what that's going to be. I do think that David Platt has given us some insight. And let me just say what one of those things are going to be. He said, I think what's going to happen is as blind as the generations were before us towards slavery, the generations that will come after us will look at us as the most wealthy people in the world and wonder how in the world we could take almost all of that and use it on our own selfish gain in the buying of our idols and maintaining of our idols and not give it for the propagation of the gospel and to be able to give to those who go without. He says, I think that the next generation is going to see, and I think he's right. I think he's right. What we need to do is we need to be people that are, are constantly going back to the word. Look at me, please. Constantly going back to the word, knowing that you've never arrived, knowing that every day that you're not in the word, studying the word, submitting to the word, the word is pressing you into its mold and you're becoming not more but less like Christ every day. Gotta be in the word, gotta be people in the book. Let me give you one last thing. The first thing was this, the vow demonstrates the tremendous influence the world can have on a believer, but the vow also demonstrates the danger of a believer falling to works-based righteousness. And, and let me explain that just for a moment. Again, we, we see Jephthah, he's really being influenced by the pagan religions around him. Why? He feels like he has to make a deal with God, okay? In other words, that's what pagan religions were. Hey, if you just do so much and you just give your God so much, then it might stir your God up to work on your behalf and do something good for you, right? And all of us are so appalled by that. No way. We don't make deals with God. But this is exactly what Jephthah is doing. And the truth of the matter is, some of us still have that same pagan religious view of our own God, all right? Let me tell you what a pagan um, Chris is, all right, just for a moment, uh, by his permission. So we're sitting down, and uh, we're having uh, coffee, and I hate coffee. I don't know why I meet at coffee shops. I hate it. So anyway, so we're at coffee, and it's weird. Let me just say this in passing. It's like I go to coffee shops expecting to try to find something that doesn't taste like coffee. Why do I go there, right? And so we go, and we're sitting there with my little frappuccino, whatever, and because it's not live simply anymore, and so I can. And so we're sitting down, and, and I just told him, I said, man, this, this message is a train wreck, as you've seen so far. And, um, and as I'm sitting across from him, I'm telling him this, and I said, you know, it's amazing how people just you know, try to make deals with God on this kind of stuff. And his eyes got big as saucers. And I go, oh, oh. Oh, you tried to make God, you tried to make a deal with God when you were in the hospital when you had a heart attack, didn't you? He goes, "Yeah, I did a lot of them, a lot of them." Right? Didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Now, now I would say that I didn't mean to throw him under the bus, but I actually did. That was my illustration to throw him under the bus. But the truth of the matter is, just listen to me for a second. Our God does not make deals. He does not base what he gives you and the love that he extends to you based on your righteous acts. He doesn't love you any more on your good days and he doesn't love you any less on your bad days. He nurtures, looks after, blesses you because he responds to you in grace. And it's the only way that our God can respond to you is by grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's it. His only way to be able to deal with him. But this guy misunderstood the grace of God. He felt like he had to actually do something to get God to work on his behalf. 
He thinks that he, listen to this, he thinks he has to go as far as giving his daughter to God. That's, that's the second thing. See, it's one thing for you to make a mistake. That's another thing for you to follow through to the mistake. Did you see that? So he makes a mistake and he realizes when his daughter comes out, uh-oh, I blew it. You know what you do when you come to the point that you blow it? You repent. You don't keep sinning. What does he do? He continues to go on to sacrifice his daughter. Listen, I read one commentator, not going to mention who they are, but, but I was shocked. They go, man, you at least got a hand to the guy. At least he was true to his word. At least he was true to his word. Be careful about making vows of God. You can't take back your vow. I, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I hope you could take your vow back out to God, don't you? Because I've been plenty stupid in my life to make a vow to God. If not, I'm in big trouble. Are you in big trouble? I am. But, but here's, the, here's the idea. It would be like this. It would be, okay, because the deal that he made with him was sinful. Okay, God, if you do what I ask you to do and you're good for me, I promise I'll, I'll do this sinful act of killing my daughter. It would be like me telling God, I mean, basically saying, hey, God, if, if, if I'll see people come to faith in Jesus Christ this month at church, I'll commit adultery on my wife, all right? You see people come to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have made that. Well, honey, I'm sorry, I made a vow, all right? I've got to go commit adultery, sorry, right? And go, I mean, I'm being preposterous, okay? Not trying to offend you, but being preposterous because that's how ridiculous his thinking is. He's thinking God won't be good to me if I can't get everything right. The man literally sacrifices his own child to be reconciled with God. And what he misses is that it's his God that will kill his own son and sacrifice his own son to reconcile him, not because of his goodness, but because of his great grace. Do you see that? It's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what we find within the text of Scripture. Listen, are there some of you here today that you're like, hey man, I know this. Look, I know so many people that quote stuff that's not even in the Bible, and they think they're quoting the Bible. They're, they're quoting Fox News, or they're you know, quoting CNN, or they're, I know all the Fox News, oh, you got something with Fox News? Other than it's not the Bible, right? I mean, that's, that's it. Can there be some good stuff? Sure. I can find some good stuff on CNN. <gasps> yeah, that's true, all right? But the bottom line is this, what, what, what do we look with all this is that we've got to be people of the book. You haven't arrived. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep reading. You've got to keep submitting yourself. Every moment that you're not learning and, and submitting to his word, you're becoming into enforced into the mold of the world. Dedicate yourself to his word. La- last thing, some of you are just living. Look, you have no problem with believing that God saved you by grace through faith alone. Your problem is you're having a hard time living by it. You just keep trying to make deals with him. You don't have to make deals with him. He's not a deal-making God. He's a gracious God. This has come to me and ask. You need forgiveness? Come and, and, and just ask for forgiveness. I'll forgive you freely. You don't have to do anything. Just come. You, you say, I just want him to save me. Then just come. Repent. Believe. Put your full faith in the fact that Jesus Christ was the substitute for you and died and he'll save you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today and we thank you, God, for this really odd, odd service from beginning to end with things like voting going on and in suings and and god even this this sacrifices of children this is bizarre bizarre stuff but god through all of the bizarre we see the gospel we see the goodness of jesus christ we see your goodness to us i thank god that we don't have to make deals with you this morning 
we just come to a gracious God humbling ourselves and saying, God, I deserve nothing. Will you treat me in your grace and mercy? And you bestow grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Now, God, there's one thing that I think that we need to conclude with. And that is in this, it doesn't mean that we don't try to do our best. But we're not doing our best to try to gain your goodness and your grace. We're doing it because we've already been given it. We, we live for you because you've already shown us great love. You've not, it's not to earn it, it's because we've already received it. And it's our act of worship unto you. God, I pray that we'll get that right. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand? We're, this altar is open. If you want to come and pray, if, if you want to know more about membership of our church, I'll, I'll be down here. Whatever you want to do, just spend some time just reflecting on what the word of God was and doing business with him as we sing together. All right, I'm going to ask uh, Dan to come, our ushers to come as well, and we're going to go ahead and collect the offering as Pastor Dan prays for us, all right? You may be seated. You may be seated.
Thank you so much, Ashley. Well, listen, uh, we promise no more sermons about child sacrifice next week, okay? So you got something to look forward to. Let's stand and we'll close out in a word of prayer, all right? Jesus, we do come to you, and God, uh, I'm always humbled to get the opportunity to be able to preach your word, and God, for your people, and um, Lord, I thank you for guiding us, even in this direction, that you're a part of everything that's happening here, and that God, we want it to stay that way. God, I just pray that you'd be glorified. I pray that our folks, that whether this was the type of message they wanted to hear or not, that you'd use it in our hearts, we'd be reminded of your grace, reminded of your mercy, God, that we'd worship you all the more that we learn to live in that each and every day, that we would live as living sacrifices, which is holy and acceptable unto you, which is our reasonable service. God, we love you. God, we thank you so much for speaking through our congregation in this land and knowing that it was almost uh, completely 100% unified uh, for us to be able to purchase this land. We've got to trust you now. We've got to trust you to supply. We've got to trust you to continue to lead and to do according to your will, Lord. We've got no will of our own but to do the will of God. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.